Hello, my name's Catherine Kemp and welcome to Trust Exercise, part of the UNSW Grand Challenge on Trust. In this episode, we talk with Professor Frank Pasquale from Brooklyn Law School, New York. Frank is an expert in the regulation of AI, with wide-ranging expertise from law and political economy to healthcare policy and privacy. His latest book is New Laws of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI. In this episode, we talk about the loss of trust in US democratic processes, why regulators around the world are investigating alleged abuses of power by Google, Facebook, Apple and Amazon, whether governments should use the location data collected by private companies to trace COVID contacts, why Frank says we're in an arms race of self-disclosure to virtual nakedness, how AI decision-making could be democratised to make it more trustworthy, and whether the very nature of trust is changing. Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. I don't think we can begin a conversation on trust today without acknowledging the extraordinary situation in the United States, where the current president is tell telling the citizens of the nation that they cannot trust the results of the recent election, that the election has, in his words, been rigged. And it appears that millions of people believe what he says. How significant do you think these developments are for trust in democratic processes in the United States and around the world? Yes, I think it is hard to overestimate the damage that is being done right now, both by the president and by the US Republican Party. Um, some polling has indicated that uh, 88% of Republicans do not believe that uh, Joe Biden legitimately won the election. Um, I saw another statistic that said about 68% of Republicans thought it had been stolen. And um, this is on the basis of, of no credible evidence. No, uh, It's just inconceivable that uh, these sort of long-shot legal battles and contrived allegations have anything, uh, any sort of legitimate substantive foundation. Uh, and it's a really terrifying development because it really highlights the degree to which so many of our democratic and political processes are founded on the sense that we can trust those running them, trust institutions to come up with a, an answer, an answer that we may not like, but that we will accept based on a confidence in their authority, their integrity, and their expertise. And I think that the other thing to contextualize what uh, President Trump is doing and what some of the uh, folks in the Republican Party are doing now is that um, I want to give two pieces of context. One is that the rise of QAnon, uh, this sort of conspiracy theory, uh, conspiracy mongering uh, entity or a sort of loose network online that just makes things up and uh, you know has found these very strange currents of following, including in wellness communities and, and others that you just would not expect. The other is um, indication that a lot of people don't believe uh, that the Republican Party's policies are extreme as they are. There is very interesting evidence in the U.S. that, you know, you present to people, uh, for example, the Republican health care plan from 2017 that would have 
uh, stripped away Medicaid from literally millions of individuals, this is a health coverage, and um, given huge tax breaks to uh, billionaires and multimillionaires uh, with uh, some of that money. And you tell people that that's the policy and they're just like, oh, we, I don't believe that. You know, I can't believe that they would actually do that. And so I think that there's this very strange um, uh, convergence of fantasy thinking. And I think it's something that, you know, uh, if the COVID epidemic can't bring uh, the reality principle into play, I don't know what can. Uh, and, and it's something that I, I think is going to be an ongoing issue in U.S. politics. And I just hope that uh, we can stop it from spreading. And I have to say one of the reasons that my recent book, New Laws of Robotics, has so many international examples is because I increasingly feel like um, the U.S. political institutions are, are in very deep trouble and that uh, I want to reach a broader audience where more functional pol political uh, organization uh, is prevalent. And you mentioned there that this division in large part is um, between Republicans and Democrats, and that in itself uh, is a concern in that you need to ask, how can trust be rebuilt, if at all, between Democrats and Republicans who are now often estranged in the same workplaces, social groups, even families, when the area of broken trust stretches well beyond politics and into ethics and basic convictions about right and wrong, where do you think the starting point is for rebuilding trust? I think there are um, a few models out there. I think that uh, the work of uh, Ian Haney Lopez on um, appeals to race and racialized appeals um, is very helpful in terms of his models of how um, uh, societies can be both divided along um, r racial lines by uh, certain forms of populist appeals, but also how uh, racial egalitarianism can bring people together. So that's one approach. Another approach is um, the political evolution in California, where essentially in the early 1990s, there was a lot of appeals to um, some pretty troubling anti-immigrant uh, legislation in California by the Republican Party there. And ultimately, um, uh, in part because of that and in part because of other um, shifts, both ideologically and demographically, um, it just has become a sort of uh, very a democratic supermajority area. So there the, the, the divide doesn't matter much because there isn't much practical control by Republicans of the, state, uh, so the state's political apparatus. Um, I think that there are some who say that we, we need to move to some sort of third way or some uh, uh, other mode, and perhaps uh, President Biden will be able to, to move in that direction. But I think it is hard because I just, I think there are fundamental disagreements not about how we achieve our mutual aims and ends, but about what those aims and ends are, right? And I think that when you have, uh, po normal politics can proceed along um, standard stable lines of negotiation, argumentation, and bargaining when there is at least some common idea of the goals that we want. But if that doesn't exist, then you can't do it. And I think, for example, the COVID crisis is a great example because I think there, uh, at present, the President Trump's policy is a de facto herd immunity strategy. It's just the idea that we can't control this, that, you know, that it's federal government certainly isn't doing much of anything. And therefore, 
the protect the right policy is just let it run wild and you know potentially lose uh, a million, two million people, um, and then hope that a natural immunity is built among people or that the vaccine you know gets out at some point. Um, and I think that this is um, this is very worrisome because I think that there's uh, uh, when we could have a good faith negotiation about plans to control COVID. And there were plans from conservative think tanks that were plausible, uh, and there were plans from Harvard and from liberal think tanks that were plausible. But the Trump administration and a lot of Republicans have simply set those aside and have sort of uh, just don't seem to even have a goal. And that was sort of the most amazing and troubling thing about the coronavirus response in the U.S. is that there wasn't a, it's not that there wasn't, there just wasn't a plan. There wasn't even a goal, uh, but from uh, the Trumpists for a long time. And so, yeah, I think that's very troubling. And I think that, you know, people will be looking to Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, China, uh, to see how political cohesion and trust was maintained in those polities, you know, in, 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 in polities that did manage to coalesce around scientific expertise and uh, a common goal of minimizing as much as possible uh, cases and deaths from coronavirus. Obviously, governments need to be able to respond quickly to this kind of crisis and citizens need to be able to have sufficient trust uh, in officials, health officials, to follow their directions. But it, it seems almost that a refusal to trust the advice of epidemiologists, the CDC, leading health experts, has become a matter of political identity for many people. Do you think there's a way to depoliticize the measures needed to protect public health in America? Well, I'll start on a humorous note and then to try to think through it more seriously. Um, recently, there's these two vaccines that have become uh, you know, on the horizon as being extremely effective and, and uh, thank goodness. And uh, someone joked on Twitter that uh, let's hope that one becomes the red vaccine and one becomes the blue vaccine. And then, you know, that'll get Republicans like taking the vaccine because then they'll they'll sort of stick it to the libs, get the get the red uh, Republican vaccine. Um, but I, I think that, you know, th there's a real issue there. I mean, I think that there are a couple of approaches to science communication out there. So if we were to look at the cultural cognition school, people like Dan Kahan, others, um, their approach is to say, and, and you know, I'm not steeped in this stuff, but my understanding of their approach is that, is that the way to rebuild trust in scientific authority is for um, trusted voices to emphasize that both left and right distrust scientific authorities irrationally. So the idea is that you bring out, for example, with climate change, that you would bring out uh, people saying, look, Climate change is real and we really have to do things to mitigate it. And also, uh, in terms of genetically modified food, um, all these lefties don't like genetically modified food, but actually it's a good thing. It doesn't hurt anybody and we need to uh, uh, get with the program and endorse it, right? And so that's one idea is that you sort of would, it, that this would take out the sting of um, uh, correction by saying that it's not simply one group that's wrong on everything, but you know we are all wrong on some things some of the time. Um, I have my skepticism about that strategy because I just think that the the quantity and the degree of seriousness of the uh, faults <laughs> on each sort of side are are not really um, commensurable and are not really uh, 
that close together. And so I, I think that part of what needs to be done is that you need to have a more responsible press that will ask experts in their field about who should be given voice and who should not. So we saw this with climate change, for example, for some time, you would have people have uh, debates on the news where one side would sit, there would be uh, out of a thousand scientists, maybe one in a thousand or one in 10,000 would say that climate change isn't real or that it'll be nice because it'll counteract a coming ice age or whatever the bizarre uh, idea could be. And they would say, well, let's have that one person debate a representative of the 999 others or 9,999 others. And I think what, what the press gradually learned was that that was not effective and that that was unfair and that was not a, a, an accurate depiction of reality. And I think something similar, uh, if you look at Joan Donovan's work on disinformation for data and society and for the Social Science Research Council, there's similar work on strategic silence in the face of um, obviously wrong, misleading, um, or uh, propagandistic approaches to some of the issues we've discussed. So I think that would be one way, and, and you know that could fit into the the cultural cognition risk risk uh, science communication approach. But I think it is something that we really have to think deeply about: is what's the role? Where are people getting their information? And that also leads, of course, to a, a real um, need and a need for a reckoning with social media, because you know 20 years ago, all the word was, or at least 15 years ago, the word was. Thank goodness for social media. Everyone can be a journalist. This is the most biggest democratization and egalitarian move imaginable in the dis creation and dissemination of media. And you know now, I mean, if, if QAnon is the result of that, is the game worth the candle? You know, uh, and and I think that we uh, we need to really rethink uh, the overall social media landscape um, because of problems like this. One of your roles is as chair of the Subcommittee on Privacy, Confidentiality and Security as part of the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics. I'm interested in your views on the balance between the need to collect personal data for contract tracing, especially during the pandemic. And I wonder if I can uh, read you a part of an article from earlier this year written by professors Danny Sokol and Aninja Ghosh who were writing um, in part praising the governments of Korea and Taiwan for unlocking the potential of digital platforms and big data and machine learning to mitigate the spread of the virus. And they went on to say that around the world, a new approach is necessary that utilises the strength of tech companies and data collection. To do so, there needs to be global regulatory coordination to grant the right institutions authority to access granular user data from CCTV surveillance footage, GPS tracking data from phones and cars, credit card transactions and ATM records from financial service firms. This requires active collaboration between the public sector and the private sector, for example, tech companies, startups and telecom providers being incentivized to share their data with the government. Do you agree that this data sharing collaboration between public sector and private sector is what is needed? Are there ways for us to have the benefits of data without uh, disproportionate risks to privacy? 
Well, thank you for uh, calling my attention to that article. I really look forward to reading it because it has some very uh, important and interesting points. Um, and I, I think that we had a hearing for um, the Privacy, Confidentiality, and Security Subcommittee in September. I, mean, I believe most of it is online, um, uh, or at least the, the agenda and, and suggested readings by the um, presenters are online, and we had some really star presenters. And here are some themes that you know I would draw from that. And again, in, as I'm speaking today, I'm not speaking on behalf of the subcommittee or the full committee of the National Committee on Vital Health Statistics uh, in the U.S., but just to, from my own perspective here. The first step in reasoning about it, I think, is that data strategy is only one part of an overall COVID prevention strategy. So when you have a government that is extremely competent and on the ball, moving quickly, that knows how to quarantine and how to support quarantine for exposed individuals or infected individuals, um, and that has a coordinated response on all those levels, in such cases, the social contract between that government and its citizens would seem to me to include social license to engage in the types of data collection that um, Sokol uh, and, and the co-author are, are describing. Um, and so I think that that is the, um, uh, a real sine qua non, a that without which, for such aggressive data collection. I think if you contrast that to places, and I'd include the U.S. here, and I'd include a lot of Europe here, where some individuals were thinking data is the first step and we're going to first gather a whole bunch of data, and then we're going to figure out what to do with it. That's not the way to approach these things. And that, to me, is a prelude to a data grab that is not going to do that much to actually substantively reduce the problem of the pandemic, but that will impose um, considerable risks on individuals in terms of their uh, loss of data or loss of, uh, or loss of ability to control the flows of data about them. And so I think that that to me is the first step, is that I, I think that we, and it comes back to your trust theme in a, in a very interesting way, because I think that looking at a place like Taiwan or South Korea, you know, they are using extensive big data methods in order to uh, keep tabs on their population. And, but that is only one part of a much broader scheme. In Taiwan, a lot of emphasis on border controls from the very beginning. Um, in South Korea, on cluster busting and on sort of uh, the ability to immediately move into a cluster and to um, impose quarantine, but also a supportive quarantine where people are delivered food to their door. So it's not like, you know, you're told to quarantine and then, oh, you only have two days of food. Well, uh, too bad for you, right? Um, those are the sorts of situations where I think that you can think of uh, the trust has been earned to have that level of uh, data analysis and control. Whereas in a lot of other situations, the trust really isn't earned. And the other problem, of course, for the US and the EU is that if you have a, a real insistence on consent um, and, and everyone's sort of choosing their own app or you know that there, there's fragmented data or lack of interoperability, then that really undermines the overall uh, public health approach um, if there were the trust involved uh, to merit the, the data collection. So it's, it's a great question, and I think that in general, um, one of the things that we're working on at the Privacy, Confidentiality, and Security Subcommittee is a report on the hearing that would give um, 
more of an idea of what a trusted public health surveillance infrastructure would look like and what it would need to be embedded in in order to um, uh, bring some of the successful models of data um, to the U.S. And of course, I want to, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on South Korea and Taiwan and their data strategy. I think a lot more has to be done with respect to other countries. And, you know, I, I look forward to researching on Australia, Vietnam, New Zealand to sort of figure out um, the data uh, use there. So, yeah. I must say it sounds so civilized to have groceries delivered to people's door when they're in quarantine and that could have saved some of the very uncivilized scenes in Australia as people were battling each other for groceries in the shopping centre aisle. We've got a bit to learn from there. Um, in, in that same article, I should say, the authors speak of a tech backlash around the world and the fact that digital platforms and tech firms are in their words, under populist attack. Now, of course, the US Department of Justice recently brought proceedings against Google for unlawful monopolization, alleging that Google's conduct harms competition and consumers and reduces the ability of new innovative companies to develop and complete, compete. Can you explain what, what is this case against Google about and how does it fit with proceedings and investigations of Google, Facebook, and Apple by numerous regulators around the world? In so much of American antitrust law, there's this consumer welfare standard that sort of that says that um, we are going to uh, approve mergers or uh, activity that increases consumer welfare. And for a long time, that standard has been used to um, exonerate tech firms to say, well, even if they seem to be engaging in sharp business practices, look, a lot of what they're doing is free and it's really helping consumers, et cetera. And I think that the idea here is that the, the sort of practices uh, on the search engine are undermining uh, consumers rather than helping them. And therefore, you know, we need to be able to um, uh, intervene and to stop that. And, you know, I think that it's part of a broader move, and I know this is getting us outside of antitrust law now, but I think it's part of a broader move to conceive of a lot of internet infrastructure as something that is not merely one player in the market, but is a market maker, is essentially the master of certain markets. And as the, the effective governor of these markets, they have what I call a functional sovereignty role. They're, they're functionally sovereign and control these markets and therefore have higher uh, duties than, say, just your average uh, firm. And in this, these proceedings, the Department of Justice has said that it's not prepared to rule out uh, remedies at this stage, such as breaking up um, the company and breaking up its various businesses. Is that something that you think could be beneficial when we consider uh, the infrastructure, as some people see it, provided by Google, and Facebook and other digital platforms? Yes. And I mean, I would start with, I think the paradigm case there would be Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram being controlled by the same company. I think that that's a, uh, the Mark Zuckerberg and uh, uh, top leaders of Facebook are going to say, oh, it's wonderful that we have this 360 degree view of you so that we can further optimize ads better and better and better. Um, but it's not at all clear that merely having more data about a person 
is going to lead to better ad optimization, assuming for the moment that that's all we care about, um, is going to lead to better ad optimization than having three different firms with three different streams of data, um, each trying to think about different ways in which they could uh, connect consumers to products, etc. So, you know, I think that that's a, that's a really good example where uh, I can see no argument for keeping those firms together, given the power that they have, um, given the, the many other concerns raised, and given by the, the dubious uh, consumer welfare basis of their current um, uh, combination. I think with respect to Google, Apple, Amazon, there are, the, the questions get harder, but not necessarily incredibly hard. You know, I mean, I think if we think about the, if we were to go to Wikipedia and look at the acquisitions pages by these firms, you know, and just see that they, they I think at one point we're on pace of acquiring uh, one firm every two weeks. You know, it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable how many firms they've swallowed up. And just to give a very simple divide in, with respect to Google and YouTube, you know, why should um, general purpose search be uh, completely integrated with uh, video search in one firm, right? I mean, I don't, I don't really see much of a rationale for that. Um, and I think there, the privacy threats, again, um, greatly outweigh the um, consumer um, uh, benefits. And of course, you know, I, I imagine there are all manner of uh, economic research papers that might, you know, try to frame things in certain ways or do experiments to show that the opposite is true. But I think that this is fundamental. I think that where a lot of antitrust went wrong is in thinking about this as solely a scientific, and I should say quasi-scientific or scientific in quotes, enterprise where economists are the experts that we turn to. Um, What's fundamental here, and what was certainly top of mind with many of the drafters of uh, competition laws, including U.S. antitrust laws, is the power uh, over markets and over the economy that is accumulated here. And I think that you know, given uncertainty about the balance between consumer welfare and privacy threats posed by these combinations and these uh, just massive firms, that um, that is just all the more argument that the political determination that a firm has simply gotten too big or that we don't want general purpose search completely integrated with maps or with video search or with whatever it might be, that all of those are perfectly legitimate um, decisions for governments to make. Of course, a good example of that increasing crossover between privacy and uh, competition law is in Germany, where the Federal Cartel Office, the Bundeskartellamt, has found that Facebook engaged in abuse of dominance in respect, of, in part, of its terms of use, which provide that Facebook can track its users' activities all over the web, well beyond Facebook's own websites, and combine that tracking data with data about the user from Facebook. I, I think a lot of people would fundamentally question whether there are any real harms from these practices. I've heard people say, well, you know, I've got nothing to hide. If, if you want to collect all that information about what I bought, what I looked at, who I spoke with on Facebook, what harm can be done? What do you see as the potential harm from this pervasive collection of personal data not just by Facebook, but of course by an increasing number of firms? I'll go in two directions with that question. One, to answer the harm question directly, and then to question the framing of harm. Um, because I think there's a much broader social frame that is properly brought to bear on this. 
In terms of harm, I, both in the uh, I've had this evolution in sort of explaining it in the two books that I've uh, written on on tech and law. In the black box society, I give many examples in the second chapter of that book of people who um, have had data about them in a system that was discrediting to them, that was either untrue or misleading, and that led to you know concrete decisions being taken against them, be it you know being denied credit, denied a job. Um, on the basis of the, of this data, so I think that you know you can think of uh, one of the issues here is to think of um, the data dossier being generated about you by a lot of big tech. Um, on the one hand, positively is going to potentially connect you with products or even employers who you want to be connected with, but just as plausibly will be full of um, black balls, you know, strikes against you, um, and I think that is a real uh, concern for many many people. Um, however, I also want to get to an argument and, oh, and, and a second element of, of harm uh, I explore in uh, chapter uh, five of my new book, The New Laws of Robotics. It's about machines judging humans, and it's about the pressure to give more and more data to entities that promise us some level of discount. So, for example, we might be told by a bank, you know, if you let us uh, connect with your Facebook profile and uh, analyze your social data there, we're going to give you a discount on the interest rate on your mortgage, you know, or something like that. And that's all well and good considered individualistically. But what that ultimately is part of is an arms race of self-disclosure to the point of virtual nakedness, right? Because once they may try to make that deal with you, um, if you're the first person, great, you know, you get a discount. But once they get a significant number of people to start revealing more and more data about themselves, then the question becomes, if you resist that, what do you have to hide, right? And so if we are all involved in these sort of arms races for relative advantage in searching for employment, for credit, for other opportunities that are being mediated by algorithms driven by the data uh, collected by these firms, then what you have is essentially a what Scott Peppett calls a full disclosure future. And to the extent these companies are enabling that full disclosure future, they're harming you essentially by forcing you into that arms race um, for relative position. Now, of course, there's going to be winners and losers, and what they take advantage of is, the, is that most people are overly optimistic and think, well, when I am judged, uh, when all is said and done, I'll do better than the rest. Um, but what, what I think is um, ultimately uh, at stake here, though, is you know, being forced into that sort of data competition itself is quite corrosive of one's sense of autonomy and ability to, to shield prying eyes from all aspects of one's life. And, you know, just to give a practical example of that, there are discounts given by insurers in the U.S. for wearing a wearable, you know, for having a wearable on all the time. So do we really want to enter into that type of a world? Um, uh, but the last point I want to make is, uh, so I've made two points about harms and where the harm would, would lie. The last point, though, is that I think that Setting up the presumption that government can only intervene when it has demonstrated harm on an individual level, I would question that presumption. I think it's perfectly legitimate for uh, a government to say, look, we just don't like the fact that one company has so much power over data, right? And we may not like the fact that like, it gives it an incredible power over elections. That could be one thing. We think about micro-targeted ads. I was, uh, there's an, uh, legislation proposed by Anna Eshoo in the uh, U.S. Congress to ban micro-targeted political ads. And one reason to do that is because, you know, if we live in a world where, for example, it's been documented that Facebook offered Trump uh, ads that were lower priced than Biden ads, 
um, then you know clearly we can see imagine future iterations of that where governments are on notice either tacitly or explicitly that they need to be extremely favorable to those that have these data stores because if not they're going to be deployed either unilaterally or in a disc in a favorable favoritist way um, to help their opponents who will be more favorable to the tech firms. So that's where I would go through, you know, from individual harm, sure, that's an important part of the situation, but we also have to have a much broader conversation about the types of power that are enabled by this data concentration. Now, in your book, The New Law of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI, you look at the various ways that artificial intelligence is now used, and it's increasingly being used to shape our lives in so many ways, to determine how we work, what media we consume, what medical treatment we receive, how laws are made and enforced. The decision-making, though, about AI is generally concentrated in the hands of a small and fairly unrepresentative group, mostly white males, with some serious implications for its effects. How do you think we can make the design of AI more trustworthy? Is there a way we can democratise our decision-making about the increasing automation of tasks that were previously performed by humans? Yes, that question is at the very core of the book. And I think if there was one message of New Laws of Robotics, it is that um, at present there's a great deal of concentration of AI uh, expertise in very large tech firms and in some universities that they have close relationships with, um, and that that needs to be democratized. And one of the ways in which we can democratize it is to ensure that when AI is developed and deployed in certain sectors in the human services fields, that the existing domain experts, you know, doctors and nurses and medicine, and I could talk about many other healthcare professionals there, or teachers in education or journalists when it comes to um, uh, media, that those domain experts are in at the ground floor with the power to shape the development of the AI, right? And I, and I like to think about like what type of world would we live in if, for example, Facebook's newsfeed or Google's uh, news services or YouTube um, had input from journalists that was real input, powerful input um, from the get-go. I think it would look much different. And I don't think that many of the worst things that they've done would have been um, as likely if you had actual journalists involved that had some level of independence and professional autonomy. So that's my, my goal here. And, and I know that this is, it's an unusual line of argument because most people think of professions as themselves being elitist and you know, anti-democratic. Um, but I think actually the future of uh, work is gonna lie in the professionalization of all sorts of fields. Um, and that this professionalization, which involves um, a, again, the social contract between laborers who are given some autonomy to shape how their field is built, you know, like we have medical boards and, and medical uh, groups that, that determine a lot of the uh, standards for becoming a doctor and practicing medicine, that in exchange for that, that they are looking out for and have higher standards and higher obligations to uh, the people they're serving, and that they, they undergo some uh, education and reflection upon the goals of their field, that that's going to be the future in a lot of areas. I mean, e even ranging from, you know, to hotels, retail, um, wherever service really, uh, services businesses continue, 
Um, I do think that outside of services, you're going to see a lot of automation. And I don't really address that much in my book, except to say that I think that one of the great economic shifts that's coming is going to be a lot of automation outside of services fields and a lot, um, uh, and, and then a struggle over the scope and direction of automation in, in services fields. I wonder if I can ask you one final question about the nature of trust um, in this context. When, when we think about the interaction of trust and artificial intelligence, the issue is typically whether we can trust AI or how AI should be designed or regulated to be trustworthy. But we are we also seeing now that AI is changing our very idea of trust? In, in this uh, series of interviews, we've seen that a large part of trust is organic or emotional, dependent on our intuitions and instincts as humans. But there's also an element of trust that comes from structures and institutions on which we rely. Does the wider adoption of AI in areas from dating to politics make you think that those organic human elements of trust will become less important? And, and would that be a bad thing? That is a, a very challenging question, you know, to think about the nature of trust. And, um, uh, you know, it puts me in mind of some of the, the great work on, on trust and its role as a both philosophical and, and political uh, concept and its role in healthcare. I mean, there's whole articles written about uh, trust in healthcare and to what extent, how do we build trust between patients and doctors uh, in other fields. I think that one, I think AI can both build trust and diminish it. So in terms of building trust, if I know that my doctor has very advanced AI that's going to help, help her or him avoid misdiagnosis, so that, for example, you know, let's say I go in for a dermatology uh, yearly um, uh, scan of my skin, and I know that the dermatologist is not only an expert on melanomas, but also has bought some uh, uh, scanning software that's going to alert uh, the, the dermatologist to potential problems. That gives me more trust in the medical field. And I think it will be increasingly um, professionals are going to be complemented by AI and robotics that help them make that, that case that, you know, you can trust me because not only am I an expert, but I've also using the technology that backs me up that helps me avoid errors. I think though that AI can also diminish trust because there is a lot of emphasis in AI for it to do things that I consider fundamentally deceptive. So for example, in affective computing, um, that's like emotional computing, um, there's a goal of creating uh, robots, at least among some researchers, that express empathy, that you know will smile at you or make a sad face if you are, seem to be crying, uh, etc. And I think that you know that these sorts of innovations they seem either cute or endearing or what have you, um, but ultimately they are misleading people about what's going on with the machine because the machine doesn't feel these things, right? It just doesn't have the um, uh, biological substrate and personal history and culture necessary to have any of these feelings. And so therefore, I think that, you know, to the extent that you see more and more of these manipulative uh, efforts, and, you know, there's there's much less sophisticated versions of these already online, like, for example, um, ads that are uh, programmed via AI 
to have people that look like you. Like there are now, uh, there, there are programs I've heard that basically the ad that is served to you will have someone that looks as much like you as possible, right? And I think that that is, um, that is troubling as well. And that, that it's sort of, it's like this subtle way in which people eventually get wise to it. And then they start, and, and the type of um, uh, backlash that it, it would properly provoke might lead to an overall uh, skepticism and more wide-reaching skepticism and, and failure to trust in uh, human emotional displays. So what I hope to see is that if we can keep AI in its place as sort of a mechanical um, assistant to experts to avoid errors, and if we can stop overreaching with AI, I, I use the myth of Icarus in one of the last metaphors in, in the book where, you know, Icarus tried to reach the sun with technology and, of course, you know, flew too close and, and, and fell, to, fell into the sea. Um, if we can avoid that sort of Icarian temptation to have AI and robotics that is just like us and, and that could be a substitute for um, a uh, cook or a, sir, or a butler, or whatever it might be, or a teacher, or whatever the, the social role may be. Um, if we can strike that balance, I think we'll be able to uh, promote technology that um, enhances trust. But if we can't, if we, we overshoot the mark and try for uh, too much ambition in our development of AI and robotics, I think a side effect will be not only a failure of trust in the technology, but also a failure of uh, trust. Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. It's hard to think of many people who can match you in being so interesting across such a wide range of topics. Thanks so much, Catherine. I, um, it's just wonderful to be back in touch. I've been um, following your work with great enthusiasm um, for years, and uh, I really appreciate this wide-ranging uh, interview and, and the broader project is just uh, terrific. So thank you. The Trust Exercise podcast series is part of the UNSW Grand Challenge on Trust. To keep up to date with our chats, be sure to subscribe to the show and we'd love you to join the conversation by leaving a comment or review.